Um, one of the pastors here at the well. Hope you guys had a tremendous Thanksgiving. A uh, little bit of feedback, but all good. I know I'm going to say something absolutely blasphemous right now, and that is okay in my book, at least as it pertains to this. Not a big fan of Thanksgiving food. Not a big fan. Oh, booze, audible booze, right, all right, great. Um, no, at all, I, I, I deeply apologize. I mean, I'm sorry up front, but man, just not a fan. The creaminess, chicken's a better bird, like the whole thing, man, the whole thing is just not my thing. Um, no, 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 uh, we, got, we got one amen. Me and him are gonna go get Mexican food later, all right? Bump all the turkey, okay, y'all can keep it. All right, now, I know some of you guys probably had a good time at Black, on Black Friday. Uh, then you went into Small Business Saturday. What is this, Cyber Monday? Uh, don't forget Giving Sunday. No? Okay, all right. I try, I, I, the first like, couple minutes, I basically just utilized it to try out new material. But um, No, in all seriousness, though, I am really excited to, to go ahead and continue our series in Ruth today. Uh, the past couple weeks, we've been focusing on the story of Naomi and Elimelech, um, specifically the suffering that's taking place in their lives in Ruth chapter 1. Elimelech and Naomi, they leave the uh, region of Bethlehem, go to the region of Moab. It's about 30 miles. And I, I want to say that it was northeast, um, but, but that, don't quote me on that. Uh, and it's there that, you know, this is kind of where the suffering begins to hone in, to kind of zero in on them. Um, their sons get married. They have two sons. They get married, but it's during the same time in Moab that Elimelech dies and their two sons die, leaving just Naomi and her two daughters-in-law left there in Moab. Now, we're going to kind of just briefly churn through this, okay? If you want like a full recap, I really encourage you to go back and listen to the last two weeks of sermons because Tori did an amazing job highlighting so much that's there. And I mean, it's just really, really great. So I want you to really go back and listen to that if you haven't. Uh, but kind of to finish recapping for this week... Uh, with no children uh, to really tie the daughters-in-law to the family, before setting back off to Bethlehem, going home, Naomi releases her daughters-in-law. She says, hey, you guys go back to your own family. There's no need for you to stick with me. Uh, on the one hand, Orpah, not to be confused with Oprah, but Orpah kisses her mother, grieves with her, and then goes home. On the other hand, Ruth uh, tells her mother, hey, don't, don't send me away. And the Bible says that she clings to her mother-in-law. And so in the midst of this suffering, yes, Naomi loses her husband, she loses her two sons, but she does in fact gain a daughter in Ruth who decides, I'm going to stick with you no matter what, and they both head back to Bethlehem. It's at Bethlehem where they actually begin to, uh, we kind of get some insight as to how they're both responding to the suffering though. Naomi, on one hand, gets back to Bethlehem and she has decided uh, that the Lord has afflicted her. That the evidence of her life is truly that God opposes her, has afflicted her, and she no longer wants to be called uh, Naomi. She wants to be called Bitter. She wants to change her name to Bitter. On the other hand, Ruth is looking at the whole situation, and she has evidently put her faith and her trust in Christ, in God. The same God that her family, her now deceased husband, maybe her deceased father-in-law and her mother-in-law present, introduced her to. She's now clinging to that God and clinging to Naomi as a result of her faith in that God. And that's where we left off last week. Now, if you are like me, you are dying to get to the next chapter because this is good stuff, y'all. This is good. I don't even mean the theological stuff. 
I mean, legitimately, this is like the telenovela I never had growing up. This is like soap opera status drama. And it's, it's fun. It's fun. All right, I know there's like three or four Latinos out here that were like telenovela. That's literally just a soap opera that comes on in the evening times most time, but it's in Spanish. And it's like your, it's like English soap operas, except for like 10 times more dramatic. It's crazy. So it's kind of the same thing, man. I kind of feel myself chomping at the bit, really wanting to dive in. But before we get there, before we move forward in the story, we do have to do a little bit of work to really see and to really get the most out of where we're going in the next few weeks. And what I mean, what I mean by that is that in, in the next few weeks, we're going to turn the corner in the book of Ruth, and we're going to take uh, the story that has so far focused on Naomi and Elimelech and their suffering, and it's going to turn into a story that focuses on Ruth and a man named Boaz and, and, and a few other characters to kind of paint this beautiful picture of how God can really work in people's lives, work in people's hearts to take b- hearts to take really broken and painful situations and make them beautiful. But in order for that to make sense, in order for it to really, really connect and for us to get the most out of that, we do need to do some background work. We need to, to create a setting because little of it is going to make sense without knowing the, the backdrop that our biblical authors really wanted us to see. And very little of Ruth's perseverance and her strength and her decision-making, little of that is going to make sense unless we get the backdrop, the setting that the biblical authors had for us. They wanted us to see. Now, setting, I mean, like, that, that's important. Because right now, if I came up here and I started quoting Shakespeare with sneakers, jeans, and a button-up shirt on, you'd be like, this guy's tripping, right? Uh, we were just talking earlier, there's a couple of other Hamilton fanatics in, in the church. And uh, I referenced Hamilton last sermon, I may or may not do it this time, don't hold your breath. But what I'm getting at is that if I came up here and started singing everything I was doing, y'all would be like, this guy is tripping. But if back here there was like a castle, right, and I came out in like green tights, and like a leotard or something, and had like a little pointy hat on, and started doing the Shakespeare thing, you'd be like, oh man, homeboy's like in the late 1500s doing his Shakespeare thing. This is cool. Those are stark, maybe it's not cool, I don't know, I'm sorry. (laughs) Sorry, whoa. Regardless, what I'm saying is that the setting, the backdrop, really influences how we see everything moving forward. And the biblical authors had this in mind when they were looking at what's going on here. So, What we're going to do is we're going to move forward into a book and into a space where we're going to try to build a backdrop for Ruth as we move forward in the next few weeks. And as we build that, I hope this is our main takeaway as we move forward into the next few weeks, into the last three chapters of Ruth. Um, I pray that our takeaway is that only by seeing, only by correctly seeing Christ can we correctly see everything about our own lives. Now, when I say that, everything about our own lives, what I mean to say is that only by seeing Christ correctly can we accurately and correctly see all of our desires, the root of all of our decisions, the root of all of our fears, the root of all of our joys. Only when we see that correctly can we correctly see the rest of what's going on in our lives and in our hearts. Now, as we kind of work through that reality and it becomes clearer to us, there's two questions I really hope we bear down and work through. Uh, They kind of complement that point. And those two questions are, how do I personally see God? And how does my view um, of God impact how I see the world? 
Now, let's go ahead and open up. We're going to go to Proverbs 31. We're going to be reading verses 10 through 31. So it's going to be a bit of reading. You can buckle in. If you do not have a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. Our ushers will give you one. If you do not have one, take that home. That's our gift to you. Additionally, if you have the YouVersion Bible app, you can just open the menu, select events, jump right into the notes that are present, or you can plug in this uh, address into your URL, this URL into your search box, right? It'll take you to the same notes. We're going to go ahead and get started reading because we do have quite a bit to get through. Starting at 10, an excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night she, and provides food for household and portions to her maidens, for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it with the fruit of her hands. She plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff uh, and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders for the land, of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. All right, quite a bit of reading, but... Um, but that's what we're working from, Proverbs 31. And realistically, right now you might be sitting there knowing that we have had the words Ruth plastered up here the whole gathering, and you might be like, what in the world are we doing in Proverbs 31? And that is a fair and good question. Thank you for asking. It's right where we're going right now. Um, now, what we want to do here, as I mentioned, is we want to build a backdrop um, the setting for Ruth, so that we can better understand what's motivating her as we move forward. The story that we're going to focus on is going to be based primarily, we're going to focus on Ruth and Boaz moving forward, but we're not really going to get a lot of insight as to what's going on in internally, in their hearts, in their, in their souls. What we're really going to see is a lot of their actions. But what we want to do is take a couple steps back and find out what actually the Bible is trying to communicate about Ruth's heart. Now, when we get that, when we move forward, her actions, what she's doing, her decision-making, her choices, all that's going to start making much more sense as we have an understanding of what Ruth's heart, her, the disposition of her heart, what that looked like. Now, the, the, the biblical authors, they also had this in mind, and that's the very idea behind how they ordered the Bible. Now, I'm not talking about this specific Bible. This is more based off of like a King James Bible. I mean the, the Hebrew Bible. Uh, it's called the Talmud. Uh, and, and that Bible right, with the original languages and the original writing, the order of that gave a certain backdrop as we went into Ruth. Now, considering we're in Proverbs, Proverbs 31, I want to give you one guess at what book 
came right before Ruth in the original Hebrew Bible. Dang, fam, that's one Bible nerd point for you guys. All right, now let me take, take one more guess, all right? Take a guess at what chapter of Proverbs is the last chapter before you would have moved on to Ruth. Bam, y'all are getting it, dude. Okay, so, so, those are two Bible nerd points for you guys. Redeemable in heaven for a crown, all right? Bad joke central, but I had to throw it in there. It's even in my notes. Like, I wanted to make that joke so bad. Um, but yes, correct. Proverbs 31 would have been the last uh, text you read right before you went into the book of Ruth. And these biblical authors, they did that intentionally. Because knowing all of the things laid out in Proverbs, if you were an original uh, ancient Israelite reader, you would have closed Proverbs, and the very next thing you would have done is started reading Ruth, and the inevitable conclusion you would have come to would have been, wow, this is that. She's she. Her is her. The Proverbs 31 girl is the Ruth girl. The inevitable conclusion would have been made, this is a real-life example of this woman. And the authors wanted us to have that because all of these ideas are so ethereal. I mean, they're, they're, they're just out there, right? Like, I don't know what the heck a merchant ship is. I don't know what that is. But all of these different things are represented in this person of Ruth. She is our real-life example of what this Proverbs 31 virtuous woman actually looks like. And so as we kind of work through Proverbs 31, what we actually want to do is build a bit of a spiritual profile to Ruth as we move forward, because that's what the original biblical authors wanted to do with Proverbs 31 moving into Ruth. So knowing our mission, knowing what we're going for here, and turning our attention to Scripture, if you notice, considering this is really about this virtuous woman and really about Ruth, when the text starts, it doesn't actually even start with her. Well, at least not directly. It actually begins to focus on something alternatively, something different, primarily because it doesn't, the authors don't want to give a big list of everything she's done and everything she's accomplished because that's not the best gauge to whether you've lived your life well. We all know people who have been successful in work or school or any other endeavor, yet we would not look at all those people and go, man, they have lived their life well. Alternatively, the author looks at another direction. He says he looks at, he looks at relationships. He turns and goes, okay, man, if we're going to actually select something that would build a pretty good representation of whether your life is being lived well, relationships are probably it. These are probably the greatest gauge of whether your life is being utilized in a really efficient, godly, obedient, faithful way. Relationships. And for this specific woman, for this virtuous woman, she's a wife. She has a husband. That's the primary relationship in her entire life. So a, the relationship he has with her husband is actually a great sample of what the rest of her relationships look like. And concerning that relationship, when we dive into the text... It actually starts in verse 10 by saying, an excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good, not harm, all the days of her life. So what is this? Right off the bat, whoever this woman's husband is, that's one blessed dude. Like, he lacks no good thing. That's what, that's what no lack of gain means. It means he lacks no good thing. 
Whatever he's processing through he might lack that's good, he literally is like, man, my lady's going to handle that, right? She, she's got my back. I mean, she, he trusts her. Whatever she's done literally has led him to look at her and going, man, this woman does me absolutely no harm. This woman only serves and loves me. Now, what we're getting at here is that relationships are the main way we gauge, uh, the author is gauging a life we'll live because relationships, man, they, they so greatly display how we see the purpose and meaning of our lives. What I'm not getting at here is a lesson on marriage. What we're getting at here is relationships in general. What actually served the virtuous woman here was serving her husband. Now, if he as a husband observes her service, he should serve her back. He should, he should serve her. But if you're married in here, all it takes is like two good weeks of being like, I'm not going to serve you until you serve me, for you to know with certainty that that is not the best idea to go about your marriage. That is the worst possible idea. It will leave each of you bitter and cold and angry. Instead, the purpose of this relationship, the purpose of what's trying to be built and shown here is, hey, this woman serves and loves her husband regardless of what he's doing. She serves him. That's her main operation here. And I'm not going to lie, man, that, that's like, that's humbling. If you are married in any relationship, it doesn't even matter, marriage, friendship, any other thing, man, you, you, you're humbled when someone serves you like that. When someone serves you like, hey, I'm not even worried about whether you get me back or not, man, I got you. There's this, there's this humbling aspect that drives a type of affection for that person. And, and this isn't even like a strictly romantic thing. Platonically, all of us in here are old enough to know whether it's, you know, romantic, platonic, all of us in here know that, man, sometimes in friendships, people just ghost on you. They're just gone. You think you're going to have a friend forever, and then they're just not there. And you text, and they don't text back. And you got something really exciting to tell them, and they don't hit you back. I'm not mad or bitter or anything. I'm like, legitimately, I'm just saying the way it is. Like, all of us know that feeling. And there's two ways to really respond to that type of friendship. Well, you're not here for me, so I ain't going to be here for you. Or, hey, yo, I'm here when you need me. They fundamentally display and show how we see relationships. Are our relationships the main means by which we're served by other people? Or are relationships the primary opportunity we have to serve others? What is it to you? That's what's going on here. The best place to gauge this life right off the bat is by looking at relationships, because relationships tell a lot about how well we're living our lives. Now, this shouldn't be a shocker for a starting place because, like, God has, like, he likes relationships. Like, I don't know, what else can we say? Like, God really loves relationships. He, he, I mean, it's at the center of God's plan for humanity. It's why Jesus in John 13 uh, says a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. See, Christ, excuse me, Christ understands and the biblical authors understood that our relationships and how we care and love for others are directly related, go hand in hand with our relationship with God. And they, they, they're directly correlated. They're directly related. If we love God, if we have an affection for Christ, if we have a love that, that wants to know him, the more we know him, the more we love the things that he loves. And he loves humanity. He loves humanity. 
Therefore, we will begin to love humanity. In fact, we were created by God so that he could serve us in relationship and share his goodness with us. That's how much he loves humanity. And we're called, actually, in creation to do that very same thing, to receive God's love and then to turn the corner, go out into the world and share that love with other people, glorifying God, right? Showing everybody, like, look how much God loves. Look how beautiful his affections are. That type of thing is what we're created for. And understandably, all of us in here know that, man, that gets corrupted. We have people that hurt us, that type of thing. Yet here, when the gospel gets a hold of us and God begins this reconstruction project in our lives and in humanity, he says the thing that we can, get, we can look at to provide the most evidence that he's working in our lives is what? Loving each other. That means that no matter what it is, whether it's reading the Bible or whether it's going to community group, None of those things are the greatest evidence that you're following Jesus and that you love him. The greatest evidence of it is how you treat the person standing to your right and to your left. That means all you folks that was out there on Black Friday shoving people to get that TV, then like, I'm going to go to church on Sunday. No, nah, that's not the way it works. That's not the way it works. But seriously, it's not a coincidence how, that we're starting at relationships. How do we perceive our relationships? Are they the means of being served? Are they the opportunity to serve others? But this is, this is where the author starts. He starts a relationship, but this is not where the author stops. He turns the corner understanding that love is not merely something that is said. It's not something that's just said. Love is something that's shown. Love extends itself. Now, you guys have all heard the verb, right? Or the, the saying that love is a verb, because it's actually shown. It's not something that we can just say if, if I go to my wife and our, our almost 10-month-old daughter, and I'm like, hey, I love you, I love Leah, right, I'll be back, and then I don't come back for like 15 hours, and I never change a dirty diaper, she's going to be like, that guy only cares about himself, right? That's what's going to happen. That's the natural course, because my actions are the greatest example of my love. And in that same understanding, that's what the next chunk of this text is about, 10 through 12 highlighted that her relationships are the greatest evidence that God is at work in her life. But those relationships are blessed because of the actions that she partakes in, how she treats, how she loves. So when we look at verses 13 through 27, it's just a huge list of all the things this woman does. I mean, a huge list. And we're not going to go through it because it's insane. It's like crazy. Like, she's just listing, it's just this author listing off all these random things that she's great at. Like, if we just sat there and looked like she makes linen garments, I'm guessing she's, like, making clothes for herself. Um, right? She is, what is it? There's one about, like, she's not even worried about snow. She lives in ancient times without heaters. Right? Like, it snowed last year, and everybody in Texas was freaking losing their mind. This woman is in an ancient clay house at snow, and she's like, we're straight. Right? Like, that's incredible. She's great. She's prepared. She's, in fact, just going through and broadly giving themes, like, like what they're talking about, I counted just basic, basic overview seven, uh, which is like provision, wisdom, kindness, generosity, hard work, strength, diligence. Man, that's crazy. And it's not even a concise list either. It's not like, here's my strength list. Here's my wisdom list. Here's my, you know, diligence list. It's like all over the place. Like wisdom here, wisdom there, wisdom there. It's everywhere. Now, to the English reader, this kind of just feels like one big sporadic, unintentional thing. But if you were an ancient Israelite reader, this would actually make a lot of sense. Because what's going on here is, is not just a mistake, it's intentional. It, it's, it's something that's actually purposeful. This section, 10, I mean, uh, 13 through 27, is a part of a larger poem. 
And that poem is called an acrostic. And it's different from an acronym. An acronym would be like IBM, right? I think that's International Business Machines or something like that. Uh, I definitely looked that up before getting up here. Um, but an acrostic is different. An acrostic is like a poem. Uh, for instance, my daughter's name is Leah, L-I-A. An acrostic for Leah would be like insanely adorable, right? <laughs> Boom, acrostic, right? Using letters to build a description about this, this person. And the Hebrew writers, what they actually were doing here, what, what this writer, what this author was doing here was using each and every one of the Hebrew alphabet to use in a word that describes this woman, And so if you were just reading this in the original language, you would end up with this view of this woman that wasn't just sporadic and all over the place. You would say, wow, from beginning to end, from A to Z, in every aspect of her life, she lives faithful to God. She's obedient. She has subjected her life in every way to God and to being faithful to him. Right Now, transparently, I know that that for a lot of us in here, especially like women, mamas, wives, men, you're reading this and this is more burden than it is a blessing. Because you're reading this and you're like, bro, how do you even, that's not possible. I don't even know what a merchant ship is, right? Like, I don't, I don't know what it's like, I don't, what, what is a distaff? I don't know what that is. Like, I get it. But there is something to note in this text that, that actually might make it a little bit better to handle, might, might make it actually encouraging instead. Uh, you see, likewise, in the, original man, in the original language, a lot of these verbs don't look like they do here. Here, they're kind of like in this present, like, perfect type thing where it's just like she stays, like she, she goes, right? Like she's always doing these things. In the original language, they would have been more leaning toward like a past tense. So really, this isn't to paint a picture of a superhuman that's just like killing it day in, day out. It's trying to communicate that, hey, this was a life utilized from A to Z across the board faithfully to God. That's what it's trying to communicate. Not this incredible woman that does every single thing right every single moment of the day, but instead the idea that she would be faithful from the beginning of her life to the end of her life. Uh, Jason Derushi, uh, he is a noted Hebrew professor regarding this rereading I think of this text, he says this. Instead of what she does, the description says what she did and what she used to do. We're not talking about a prospective spouse for a young bachelor or um, even a young wife. Rather, this passage is about a mature woman whose character and labors uh, have benefited her husband and children. The behaviors are typical, not constant and simultaneous. She did not necessarily stay up late and rise early every day but she did what was necessary for the benefit of the family. She did not necessarily have ongoing concurrent business in real estate, farming, tanning, textiles, but over the years, she has done such things. This is a lifetime achievement recognition, not a daily planner. And so really, when we understand that, the challenge does not become, how can I be a superhuman? The challenge instead becomes, how can I be faithful? How can I live my life in a way that's faithful to God? And bear in mind, I'm not saying live my life in a way that's perfect, but to live my life in a way that's faithful. This woman stumbled. There's no one that's perfect except Christ. She stumbled. Yet something about her heart, the disposition of her heart, how she saw the Lord and how she saw her life, 
continuously motivated her to be faithful to God. That is to do things that she found and knew were pleasing to him. And for us, legitimately, I think, I think a challenging question for us is, man, what parts of our lives have we not subjected to the microscope of faithfulness? There's aspects of our lives where we say, hey, man, I have, during this season of my life, I'm a, a young man, I have given all of this portion to God. But there are these portions as a young man I, I don't think I want to give over right now. I don't want to be faithful here. Right? This is a challenge because it is saying the entirety of her life was subjected to God for the long haul. There's not, I, I want to, to do certain things now, and as I grow older, I will settle into others. There was faithfulness, the disposition of her heart that understood, I want to be obedient, and I want to love God well right now, wherever I am, whatever season I'm in. So what aspect of our hearts lean away from that right now? Whether we're in school, whether we're a young professional, whether we have a young family, empty nesters, no matter where you are, we all deal with this. And this story of faithfulness is beneficial to all of us across the board. Yet, realistically, man, I know, I'm I'm not up here trying to tell you that this is easy. This is difficult. This woman made it into the Bible. The Bible, right? Like, I'm, I'm not saying she was in a Dr. Seuss book. Right? The ideas that are explained here are meant to be difficult because they are meant to to show us what it means to be faithful to God in a world that continuously tells us not to be. Now, how that actually happens, that's actually not covered in this exact text, but as we move into this exact section, but as we move into the next section, the authors begin to shed a little bit of light on what's even motivating her to to live like this. Like, Like, Who devotes their life this way? Well, it's because as we move into the last section, starting in verse 28, moving through 31, it starts to give praise, but it also has a couple of clues in it for us. 28 says, Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands, and let her works praise her in the gates. You see, here in this last section, this is where our virtuous woman begins to, to receive a bit of that appreciation and praise, right? Like, man, it, it's undoubtedly, guys, I, I understand that in many cultures, right, that are hostile to Christianity, people that are faithful to God oftentimes will experience um, suffering or persecution. Largely, here, that's not going to happen all the time. And in her context, that didn't necessarily happen either. She, this virtuous woman lives out a life that was obedient to God, that was affectionate toward God, and that fuels her actions so much so that the children around her were like, yo, she's blessed. Her husband was like, man, she's better than all the rest, right? Um, that, that did not, I did not mean to rhyme that at all. It just <laughs> happened to happen. Um, and if you look, the text in kind of this, this crescendo says, man, she is to be praised. But after everything we've learned about this woman, after all of the great relationships she's built, after all of the many endeavors she's been a part of over her life, what is the reason she's actually supposed to be praised, though? Is it because she's been successful in business or because she's raised a family or because she's built a home? Is it because she's, she's you know, a millionaire? What is it? It's none of those things. 
Instead, in verse 30, it simply says, a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Man, in here, for those of us especially, um, to our ladies in here, if you were right now battling through some of this and looking and being like, man, I, I could never, I don't know, I'm sure if I could live out like a life, I can get a lifetime achievement award like this lady's getting in here. Man, the disposition that earned her praise was actually not related to anything she laid her hand to, but instead of how much she depended on the one who, knew, who had and knows all things, that's what she was praised for. In fact, it's really the very thing that's fueling the rest of what she does. If we take a look at this text and we take the whole thing and just flip it upside down, it actually looks more like this. The fear of the Lord actually fuels acting and living in faithfulness. And that faithfulness begins to bless everybody, begins to bless those around us. If, if, if people are far from God, displaying the love and affection of Christ draws them closer to Him. If we just have people that are hardened, man, a lot of our actions display a measure of Christ that may be the only one they get to see. That begins to influence and shape the world around us, all starting at this origin of the fear of the Lord. But what is that? Because... Am I talking about, like, that she, this virtuous woman, did all these great things and lived this faithful life because she was, like, curled up in a corner, like, trembling that God was so scary? Well, no. And yes, right? Like, like kind of and not really. Like, it's kind of, we ha- it, it's, there's subtleties to it. Um, the fear of the Lord is something that we kind of, we hear and we read in our scripture. In our specific culture, we very much so kind of step away from We're like, oh. We have some cultural like aversions and reservations to it because we don't want people to see God as like this grouchy old grandpa that doesn't want you on his lawn, nor do we want, him, nor do we want to see God as like this tyrant who, who's ruthless and merciless. And so we step away and we try to use language that will curb his character a little bit, just kind of steer it a little bit different and make it more palatable to everyone. And so sometimes we'll say things like, oh, the fear of the Lord is just like respecting God a lot. It's like honoring and revering him. And really, there's no reason to be scared of God. He's not scary. Which is true, partially. Partially. It's partially true. Because to know God, truly to know him, is to know that he is a bit scary sometimes. It's the reason in Matthew 10, Jesus warned the people following, hey, don't fear the one who can kill the body but instead fear the one that can kill the body and soul in eternity. It's why in Revelation 1, John sees a vision of the glorified Christ in heaven, right? Like in his glorified, just all of his just power. And he falls down on his face, scared that he's going to die. It's why in Exodus 20, when the, the cloud of glory sets down on Mount Sinai, all the people of Israel get so scared that they go to Moses and go, hey, Moses, can you go talk to God? Because we're really scared that if we approach that mountain, he's going to kill us. To know God is truly to know his power and to know his justice, to know his holiness, to know how immense God is. And honestly, it can be kind of scary. I'm not going to lie. If, I were, if like Dwayne The Rock Johnson were to be like, yo, I'm going to beat you up, I'd be terrified. And God is so much bigger than that. And we oftentimes don't think of it that way. But he does have these certain, this certain power that is a little bit intimidating. Yet in each one of these texts that I mentioned, 
Whether it's Matthew 10, where at the end he says, hey, hey, but don't fear, because your father, he controls and knows if even two sparrows hit the ground, and he cares about you way more, so don't be afraid. Or whether it's in Revelation 1, where John is petrified, but Jesus looks at him and goes, hey, man, hey, hey, don't, don't fear, it's me, it's Jesus, and, and I'm for you. Whether it's in Exodus 20, when, when Moses responds to the people and goes, hey, hey, don't be scared, but instead let the fear of the Lord remain. That is, let this understanding of how great and big God is, let that remain so that you, it'll stop you from sinning, so it'll stop you from going astray and leaving him. And the reason these contradictory thoughts are always coupled, this like, I'm petrified, but don't be scared, is because to know him is absolutely to know his power, but it's also to know his love and his affection. He is both. It's to know both. To know him is to know how immensely powerful and large and just insane God is, while also to know the depths of that power are only equaled by the depth of his love. Um, when I was thinking through this, actually, I didn't think of when I was a young man. Uh, my Uncle Juan had, uh, you know, I'm Latino, so I had an Uncle Juan. Uh, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't let it go. I Nick was thinking it. Uh, my Uncle Juan, we would go to his house, and my Uncle Juan had the biggest dog I've ever seen. Also, we're Latino, so it was a pit bull. It was literally the biggest pit bull I'd ever seen, though. This was a humongous dog. It must have been close to 100 pounds. You would have to walk it with this special, like, rope, and you had to put a glove on because if he like saw a critter or something and got excited and just like bolted, he would like, he would like scrape you up really bad. He was just a massive, powerful dog. And every time he went to my Uncle Juan's house, I was terrified of this dog. He was just so big and powerful. And my Uncle Juan would be like, hey, hey, just go pet the dog. Like go pet him. He's a good dog. He'll, he'll, he'll hang out with you. He'll love you, right? Just go pet him. It's all right. So every once in a while, I would go start petting him, and I'd get comfortable with the dog. The dog's name was Mookie, BT-dubs. Don't, that's not funny. That was not supposed to be a joke. Don't laugh. Uh, but Mookie. And so I'd go and start petting Mookie, and every once in a while, I would get comfortable with Mookie. And I would be like, okay, Mookie's a good dog. Then Mookie would do something insane, like clear a standard-sized fence with one jump, or like he'd grab like a tractor tire and be like, and just like take off with it. And I'd be like, bro, I can't move that tire. Mookie's doing it without trying. And like the fear would kind of settle in again. And so there was this one time at my Uncle Juan's house where we all went out to play street football, you know, like light, street lights are like the goal post kind of thing. We're playing, and all of a sudden out of nowhere, a few minutes in, around the corner, this big, rough, ugly-looking dog comes out. And he's big. And he's like kind of beat up looking, he's growling, he's barking, he's angry. And I'm freaking out. I look over at my cousins, and they look terrified. All right? Because apparently this was a stray dog known around the neighborhood to be very aggressive, and he had specifically attacked children before. Mind you, we're like six, seven, eight, nine. So we're here in the standoff with this dog, and the standoff breaks, and he runs, he charges at us, and we are gone. We take off running. All of us knew where we needed to go, though. All of us knew, hey, we need to get back to Uncle Juan's yard. Why? Because that's where Mookie is. So sure enough, we're jetting. We're running. The stray dog hauling our trails. And we get to the yard. We turn the corner to the back of the house where Mookie's yard is. Sure enough, we come around. Mookie looks at us like, what's going on? And then this stray dog comes around, and there's Mookie. And Mookie just pounces on him. He starts tearing him up. Like, he starts pushing him around. He's like, it seems like Mookie's dragging this dog around 
It was quite scary. I thought the dog, the stray dog was going to die. Not that I minded at that moment, but still, it was like, there was like, I was scared for the stray dog a little bit. And the crazy thing is that that stray dog, he did look so incredibly large, but next to Mookie, he seemed so small. And, and the stray dog looked so incredibly powerful, but next to Mookie, he looked so weak. So sure enough, the dog manages to get off, and he just takes off because he's like, I'm getting out of here, right? And we're looking at Mookie, and Mookie just comes over and starts like, trying to like, rub up against us. The dog that we were terrified of, the dog we found security in, the same dog that instilled so much fear because of his power was the same dog we took refuge in, in our greatest time of need. That's like the fear of the Lord. To know that he's so powerful, so immensely huge, so immensely great, yet in his goodness we find refuge in him. It's literally no wonder that in Proverbs 14, it says, the fear of the Lord, in the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence and his children will have a refuge. That tension, the fear of the Lord, knowing that God is so great, yet he loves you. And in no place is this more seen than in Jesus. In no place is this more seen than at the cross of Christ. Because God as a good judge and as an almighty ruler had every right to look at the, the choices we've made when we lacked fear for God. When we looked at him and said, man, I, I, don't, I don't see you as all that powerful. In fact, I see this, whatever this is, as more pleasurable, more powerful, deserving of my attention and affection more than you, so I'm going to pursue this Every moment that happened in our own lives, he as the good and right God and judge and just ruler that he has had every right to say, in my immense might, I'm going to lay down a heavy hand of power and judgment on these people. Yet in his goodness, looked at us as humanity and was like, no, but I want them. In the same way that Mookie terrified me, but he protected me because I was his family, God, in his great judgment and wrath, looked at humanity and said, no, they're mine, and I'm theirs. And the greatest display of God's power was seen at a cross where Jesus, the greatest champion, the greatest defender, all-powerful, literally people taunted him and said, hey, you can't save yourself, and he received it knowing that in the snap of a finger he could lay down his life so that we could be God's, so that we could be his, so that we, instead of knowing only the fear of God, could celebrate his power, but because of Christ's sacrifice, rest in God's love. That's what it means to fear the Lord. It means everything else looking small compared to God. That's, right, that's what happened in this woman's life. It was the freedom to be faithful, the freedom to be obedient, because no longer did anything else intimidate the virtuous woman, because she had God. She was God, and God's, God was hers. So who cares if you fail? You're his. 
Who cares what someone thinks about you or what someone has an opinion if you make a decision that is literally a decision that wants and desires to be faithful to God and someone criticizes you about that? God, right? God, you have him. In lack of security or in the presence of security, man, God, he's truly where we turn to derive every single thing that we need, every ounce of assurance, confidence, and everything else comes from this God because he made us ours when we were far off and now we balance his might and his love in our hearts and it frees us to pursue whatever we want to pursue glorifying him, to pursue honoring him, and there's no risk because we're his. Why do I require, in order for my life to have meaning, the riches of the world when I know the richest who owns all the cattle on a thousand hills? Why do I need wisdom in my life in order for it to have meaning when I know the wisest? Why do I need power in my life to have meaning and fulfillment when I know the most powerful? It's when he becomes so great that everything else looks so small that now I'm free to pursue a life of faithfulness and of obedience because no longer is disobedience the obvious choice, but obedience is. Man, why would I take you, you know, whatever it is, temptation, deceit, lies, when I have him, powerful, joyous, loving, conquering, I mean, amazing God, why? Why? That's what frees this woman to live out this lifetime of faithfulness because she knew a lifetime of obedience equals receiving the greatest of gifts in Christ, in God, at eternity. Friends, what motivates your life? Is it that? Is it that God? Is it knowing that, men, you are loved and cared for by the greatest and most powerful being in the entire universe, that he Despite all of his power and all of his glory and his righteous anger towards sin, he defended and protected us by laying down his own life so that we could no longer be afar from him, but instead be his. As we move forward into the rest of this series, we're going to see a young woman who understood her place before that mighty God, and it motivated her to live out a life of faithfulness that displayed his character in the midst of really a difficult and hard time. And in the midst of that, I pray that we are challenged to arrive back at these questions, right? Back at these questions that we had at the very beginning. Man, how do I really see God? Is he in fact that great champion? Do I see him in his beauty and in his power? Do I see Christ on the cross as the moment where God's power was displayed and his love equally, meeting in one glorious representation of who God is. And does that impact how I see the rest of the world? Does it impact how I see others' opinions or whatever the case may be? Over the next few weeks, we're going to continue, I think, to, to navigate those questions in the life of Ruth. But, man, I pray that you would really do the work of setting your eyes and seeing Christ clearly now. That in the next coming weeks as you pursue things like going to church or going to community groups or going reading your Bible or praying, truly you would know it's not for an arbitrary following of rules, but instead to clearly see Christ so that he can shape the way you see everything else. Uh, I love you guys. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, thank you so much for um, your glory. 
a glory that's shown both in your righteousness, in your mag- the magnitude of your strength and your power, but equally in your love and your grace and your mercy. Father, let us now, as we walk out of here, wrestle with the fact that, man, you're righteous and you're powerful. And there is an element where we look at you and we know, man, you are, you're a little scary sometimes. That we would also settle into your love, knowing that now we have the relief of not being afraid because the most powerful God is for us. And if you're for us, truly, who can be against us? And so, God, I ask that you would allow us spurring on to to go on and and to fight battles that we didn't dream of fighting, fighting battles against temptations to disobey, temptations to be unfaithful, that we would fight battles to be faithful and obedient to you the way we have never have before, simply because we meditate on who you are in your immense glory, but then what you've done displaying your immense love. Love you. We thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.